Turn with me this morning again to uh, Matthew. Sorry, Mark. Not to Matthew. Mark chapter 11. End of chapter 11 here, verse 27 uh, through the end of the chapter. Hear God's holy infallible word, Mark 11, verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. You answer me. Then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I want to begin this morning with a poem. Not my poem. A poem, a famous poem called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Um, certainly one that most of you probably have heard, or at least heard of a piece of it. Um, William Ernest Henley was faced with significant suffering in his life, uh, particularly tuberculosis. And when tuberculosis required that his leg be amputated, that's when he wrote this poem called Invictus. Invictus means... Uh, unconquerable, and the, the poem intends to communicate the, the idea of defiance in the face of um, terrible suffering and difficult things, a, a troubling and uncertain future. The idea that, that you are in charge, you are the authority over your life, uh, despite these hard things. You can make meaning out of your life. This, this poem is probably probably most famously connected with uh, in, in history since then with uh, Nelson Mandela, who quoted it repeatedly. And during his imp- imprisonment, there's even a, a movie in recent years called Invictus about Nelson Mandela. Um, and also, if, if you remember who Timothy McVeigh was, the Oklahoma City bomber, um, he chose this poem as his last words before his uh, execution um, for those crimes. So here, here it is. It, it begins with descriptions of, of a dark and difficult time, and then it's the, the last line that is most famous that I want to draw your attention to. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the last line there, I think, particularly captures, in some ways, the spirit of our age. Uh, If there is or if there should be any kind of authority over me and my fate and my behavior and my life, it's me. 
right? It's only me. I am the absolute master of my body, what I do with my hands or my eyes. I'm the master of uh, my money, what I do with my time, uh, what I do with my talents. I am the authority. Uh, This passage here is all about authority in Jesus. Authority is repeated four times. It's emphasized throughout the passage. And um, it's... I think it's helpful to make the decision. The distinction it's not about power so much. Power is the ability to do something. Um, it's been obvious that Jesus has uh, power in various ways through his miracles, his uh, the following he has. Uh, but it's about authority. Authority is the right, right? The authorization, the the credentials to do something. We might apply that distinction to what we see going on in. Uh, in Europe, in Ukraine, right? No one doubts that uh, Vladimir Putin has great power, right? But just about everyone questions whether he has the right, right, the authority uh, to do as he's doing in Ukraine. So Jesus is challenged here, who gives you the right, essentially? Who do you think you are? Um, and, and really, every one of you needs to answer that question relative to Jesus, does he have authority in, in your life? Um, does he have authority in, in your world um, or not? So just follow a simple outline this morning that's in your bulletin there. Uh, first, number, number one in your outline, I just want to walk through this account again and, and be clear about what happened here. And then numbers two and three are really just points of application as we consider a couple of, of points in this story more closely. So first, uh, just remind you where we are. We're in the, the week of Jesus' crucifixion now. And, and we have been for the last several passages back to the Sunday of this week when Jesus entered in what we call the, the triumphal entry, uh, remembered as, as Palm Sunday. Um, and then Jesus and his disciples have been returning to Bethany a mile or two away during the night and then coming back to Jerusalem. Um, so the, the day before... Um, Monday was the day he went to the temple and um, disrupted things there. So this seems to be the Tuesday of that week. And this this seems to be quite a day. This day goes all the way through chapter 13. Um, and all that is described in that, you'll see chapter 14 begins with, now the Passover was only two days away. So that was that's the Wednesday that we'll come to. This passage begins a, a string of challenges to Jesus. The religious leaders keep coming up to Jesus and trying to stump him, trying to trap him. There's four in a row. There's this one on authority, and then there's one on paying taxes, and then one on marriage, and then one on the greatest commandment. And there's a, there's a parable in there as well that we'll look at next week. We'll, uh, the, the disciples and Jesus will witness a, a widow put all that she has into the offering of the temple on this day. Uh, Jesus will go on with what we call the Olivet Discourse, talking about all that will happen till he returns again, uh, all on this Tuesday. But here at the beginning, verse 27, we're told the chief priests, scribes, and elders approach Jesus. These are the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the authority there in in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 28, this is their question. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Uh, It's not hard to imagine what they might have in mind in terms of these things. Who who gave you the right to do these things? We could think of the fact that Jesus is preaching with authority. Uh, Over and over again, the Gospels 
Note that people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because it was with authority. He, he often begins his preaching with the Greek word amen, amen. Truly I say to you, it has the ring of speaking as, as a prophet, as if he's speaking for God himself. Um, even more than that, we could, maybe they have in mind Jesus welcoming tax collectors into his ministry and his vision of the kingdom. Um, who gives him the right to welcome rotten people like that? Um, Jesus has presumed to forgive sins. Uh, Jesus has proclaimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. Um, but probably even more on their minds on this Tuesday is I mean, two days before on the Sunday when Jesus processed uh, by his own sort of arrangement into Jerusalem as a king to people's acclaim and praise. Who does he think he is? Um, and maybe even more than that is the day before on the Monday when Jesus came to the temple and flipped over tables and drove people out and, and disrupted the business there, their business, the Sanhedrin's business in the temple of all places. What possible authority, Jesus, could you have to do these things? We might note that Sanhedrin has, has one thing right. They recognize that no one has authority on their own to, to do those kinds of things or claim those kinds of things. And so they intend to lay a trap for Jesus. If he can't produce credentials to make these claims and, and do what he's doing, then, then they can easily discredit him in front of the people here at Jerusalem. But if he claims to be doing this on the authority of God then he's easily open to the charge of blasphemy. And we might note the only possible outcome that the Sanhedrin here doesn't consider is that Jesus is actually acting on the, on the authority of, of God. And we'll come back to that. Jesus then responds with a question, as he often does. In verse 30, his question is, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? It's a, a fascinating study. Uh, Rich just last week was remarking to me um, how interesting it is Jesus' responses to people all through the Gospels, um, often puzzling, um, sometimes troubling, and, and maybe hard to understand, always different, uh, thought-provoking responses to people. And he often responds with a question, and, and he does that here. Um, and we'll see that in this whole passage as we go through chapter 12. And Jesus is challenged again and again. Jesus responds again and again brilliantly, often with questions, um, to expose the motives of, of his challengers and, and shut down their unbelieving logic. And he does that here in going back to John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Well, John's baptism of Jesus was the inauguration of Jesus' ministry and authority. Right? You remember God, God himself, God the Father, spoke audibly out of heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. And he was anointed with the Holy Spirit of power and authority. And so if John was something more than just a fraud or a trickster out in the desert there, then Jesus has authority from God. And, and if, if John was accepted as a prophet, Jesus' authority must be accepted. And so Jesus essentially says in, in turning this question around on the, on the uh, leaders here, if, if you're willing to answer my question, if you're willing to honestly reason with me and show that you really want to learn, you really want to consider my claims, then I will answer your questions. And so verse 31 and, and 32 shows the dilemma that Jesus puts them in. Uh, given their motives, they, they say, verse 31, well, if we say 
his authority, that John's authority was from heaven, and that's sort of a nice way of referring to God, if it's from God. Um, we, we can't say that because our whole opposition to Jesus would blow up then. Uh, we, sh- we should be supportive of him if that was our position. And then verse 32, but if we say it's from men, it's, it's not from God, well, the people will be upset because everyone knew that John the Baptist was a true prophet. And this, this whole discussion reveals they don't really want to have an honest discussion. Verse 18, you look back to that, they've already decided to, to look for a way to destroy Jesus. Um, they fear perhaps the consequences of considering Jesus honestly as well. Uh, it would mean giving up their authority. They've probably heard, some of them, Jesus preaching and, and the demands that Jesus makes on his followers, that they give them give him their whole lives, that they trust him completely, that they be willing to suffer, that they submit to his authority. So they're not really wrestling with ultimate questions of Jesus' authority. They're, they're just discussing practical considerations here of how it affects them, right, and affects their control and their authority. Um, and so they come to their conclusion. And in, in, uh, in, in 1946, Winston Churchill was uh, coming out of a meeting with President Truman and he was asked a question about their meeting and about the war. And uh, Winston Churchill famously responded, I think no comment is a, a fabulous expression. He says, and I'm using it again and again. And, and of course, he could be saying no comment to protect secrets of, of the war and that kind of thing. But uh, politicians constantly, frustratingly use that response, right? No comment, just to protect themselves. They don't want to share the truth or they don't want to share their opinion because of the political consequences of it. And that's essentially the conclusion that the leaders come to here. Verse 33, when they say, we do not know. Really, they're saying, no comment. We don't want to answer that question. They're not willing to know. Uh, they're not willing to answer. And so Jesus responds, neither will I answer your question. So That's what happens here in this scene. Let's look at... Uh, number two on your outline, the first uh, lesson I want to draw from this, I'm, I'm summarizing this way, that Jesus asks the questions and you must answer to him. Just go back and observe again the question in verse 28 that's brought to Jesus. It, it's not a bad question. Jesus doesn't object to the question. In one sense, it's the central question of everyone's life, of all of history. Like, does Jesus have divine authority? Uh, is he the son of God? There, there's no more important question than that for, for everyone who lives. There's no more important question for historians or for philosophers or for physicists or software developers or car salesmen or whoever you are. There is no more important question. It's a, it's a dangerous question. It's a consequential question. But your entire life, all, all of history hangs on the answer to that question. Is Jesus who he said he is? Or is he just a nut that can be ignored? Everything's at stake. There's, there's no middle ground in responding to that question. Does Jesus have authority? Is Jesus a lifestyle guru from the past? Uh, or is he king of kings? And, and the Bible is clear. Jesus is clear in his teaching. Jesus is not merely your helper. He's not merely your teacher. He's not merely your savior. He's not less than any of those things, but he's also your Lord. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so Jesus 
who's been ministering for three years now and giving uh, unbelievable evidence of this authority, turns the question back on them, essentially asks the leaders their own question in this question about John the Baptist. Um, Where is my authority from? He essentially says, you you already have all you need to decide. And so to these, these arrogant leaders trying to trap and destroy him, verse 29, he says, I will ask you one question. You answer me. And then he repeats that in verse 30. Answer me. And in my translation, it, it doesn't. But I, I, I feel like there should be an exclamation point at the end of verse 30 there. Answer me. You answer me. These religious leaders, as his creatures, you as as his creatures, are accountable to him. Right? We are the ones who have broken his law, who, who don't even deserve to live. We are the ones who are utterly helpless without his sustaining power as, as creator, without his patient grace as a long-suffering covenant God. Jesus is the one who questions you. Uh, who demands answers first. He doesn't stand before you or answer to you. Uh, You stand before him. He doesn't meet your demands. Uh, You answer to his. This reminds us of of God confronting his people uh, with questions a a couple of occasions in the Old Testament. Uh, I want to briefly look at those uh, powerful passages. First, Isaiah 40. Uh, In Isaiah 40, God confronts uh, his his unfaithful people with these questions. I'll just read a few of them from that chapter. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded as him by him as worthless and less than nothing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not Understood since the earth was founded, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. It says he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. It reminds us of, of uh, God confronting Job uh, in Job 38 and 39. God is the one who asks the questions, Job. And and God confronts Job's complaints against him in these chapters with almost mocking sarcasm. Again, here's just I'm just going to jump through and uh, pull out some of the questions. He says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. You shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recess of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over water jars of the heavens? Then he asks later on, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? 
Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? And, and on and on it goes. God, through the authority that he gave to Jesus, has all authority, absolute authority over your life and asks you the questions. So Jesus questions these men. They, they respond with, we don't know. We don't want to answer. And again, verse 33, Jesus flatly re- refuses to engage their question. Well, how do we understand that? How do we explain that? Doesn't Jesus want them to understand? Does Jesus not accept questions? Does God not hear questions and answer? Again, Jesus refuses because their their feigned ignorance here is really arrogance. It's not that they don't know so much as they don't want to know. They don't want to learn. Jesus owes no explanation to them. He owes no explanation to you. To anyone who comes in, in arrogant a priori opposition and unwillingness to listen to him. We, we know from the entire Bible that God is patient and kind and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, eager to answer questions. All of that is true. We see that, for example, over and over again with his disciples. Jesus answers their questions. They act stupidly and foolishly and selfishly over and over again. Jesus keeps teaching them, gently bringing them along over and over again. But God doesn't beg his enemies to believe. Right? God doesn't grovel in front of people and say, you know, tell me what I have to do, anything to make you believe. He doesn't do that anywhere in the scriptures. And so his, his refusal to answer is after three years of gracious ministry and in response to their unbelief. It's a judgment against their unbelief. And, and you and I can expect the same thing. He gives to those who come to him humbly to learn, not, not perfectly, but genuinely, graciously he gives over and over again. That This is really how Jesus' parables function. He, he said this is how his parables function, right? To reveal truth to those who really want to learn. To those, those who really wanted to learn would come to Jesus later. Explain that parable. What does it mean for my thinking and how I understand the kingdom? And others who didn't believe just heard gibberish. Or they, they received no benefit to their souls from his parables. It makes me think of the end of the parable of the ten minas, which ends with Jesus' statement, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. Uh, if, if you're not seeking Jesus, if you're not humbly wanting to learn from him, um, have him shape your life, you, you will not grow. You'll be more and more hardened uh, against him. The second lesson, number three, on your outline there, uh, summarizing this way. Jesus has all authority. Uh, live by this truth. My, my interest here, finally, is to encourage you to live by the example of Jesus. And just consider, again, where Jesus, where he is intentionally uh, on this morning and, and what he knows this week. Um, and, and don't forget, as, as we read this passage and the chapters to come through this week leading up to his crucifixion, don't forget that he is a man. Uh, it's, it's crucial to keep that in mind, that he has, aside from sin, all the weaknesses that you and I have. 
Again, this passage opens by telling us they came to Jerusalem, not just to Jerusalem, but to the temple, to the center of religious and and political power. There where Jesus lived. Uh, This is the center of their authority. And Luke adds that Jesus was not just, as Mark says, walking around, but he's also preaching the gospel, Luke says, on this morning. Jesus does that knowing the opposition that he faces, knowing the the anger of the of the leaders against him, knowing that they will brutally, shamefully slaughter him in just a few days. And yet he walks right into the middle of their authority and preaches with, with boldness publicly. Why does he do that? We can answer that question correctly in a number of ways. We could point to the love of Jesus, that he, he went to the cross stayed on the cross because of his love for his people. We could also point to the fact that it's because he serves the Father, God the Father who sent him, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. What can man do to him? He's serving the Father's will, before whom all the nations are nothing, like a drop in a bucket, as as, uh, Isaiah told Israel. So what can man do? That's Jesus' confidence. And he demonstrates the kind of faith that you and I ought to have because now Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth for your sake and for your good. Uh, Tom shared with me earlier this week uh, uh, or last week sometime a a letter, an email letter that came through the Gideons from a a missionary elder in a church in Ukraine. And the, the letter was confidential. I won't give names or place names that were there, but just want to share a few things that this uh, elder in a church there wrote as a testimony to us. Um, he describes the, the war getting closer um, and um, more dangerous and so on. And then he says, my wife and I are not leaving. How can we? As an elder in the assembly, my responsibility is to shepherd at all times. It would be a terrible testimony to get up and leave these believers. We've been preparing for this day. He says later, God is about to give us a great opportunity to show our Christian faith practically and reach out into our community with the gospel. And finally, he says, as we close, the military jets can be heard overhead and we covet your prayers. We are not any braver than you, but confident we are where God would expect us to be. And then he listed Daniel 4, verse 17 at the end. The most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And gives them to anyone he wishes and sets, them o- sets over them the lowliest of men. I just want to remind you this morning that, that Jesus left his people, left his disciples with the words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Right. Do you believe that enough to, to boldly live for him? Do you believe that enough to watch the news and, and to rest in Jesus as your king? Do you believe that enough to deal with all kinds of hardship and disappointment and pain and and rest in the fact that he has all authority right now? He has all authority to forgive your sins. He has all authority to change hearts. He has all authority to build his church. He has all authority to smash the gates of hell. Uh, He has all authority to work all things for good. I just want to close with a, a verse from what the men have been studying in the men's Bible study Saturday morning, where Peter encourages 
suffering believers, even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them, nor be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He's saying, really believe that Christ is Lord, uh, that he has authority for your sake and for your good. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word and um, for the way that it confronts us to uh, really think about and consider who you are and, and hear who the Lord Jesus is uh, in his authority. Uh, we thank you that though uh, you owe us no explanation of who you are or you, you owe us uh, no answers to our demands or questions, yet you've been gracious to reveal yourself to us in, in many ways uh, and to give us all that we need for life and, and godliness, to know Christ and to know life with him forever. We pray that as we go from here today and this week, that we would live with a, a consciousness of the authority of Jesus, um, that that would be a, a sobering, uh, reminder for us, but uh, even more than that, it would be a, a comfort and give us confidence uh, and peace. And we pray this in his name, for his sake. Amen.